0: Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number forty-four with Riyad the CEO of the Gamers Group. We've got him in our studio here in Melbourne today and we spent a great deal of the podcast talking about issues as we currently see with startups in the market, talk about raising capital, investors uh, and the right ways to go about it. We talk about people scaling up their revenues and some that are struggling, some that are performing very well. Then we delve a bit into some of the personal insights for him as well, how he's managed to get to where he is today, what Riyadh's currently working on with the Gamers Group, challenges that he's currently experiencing and really talking about a holistic outlook on esports startups founders and the industry as a whole so if you're interested in investing creating your own company or a startup founder yourself this podcast is the absolute perfect one for you Riyadh has multiple years of experience spanning back to when he was a teenager up until today managing millions and millions of monthly active users across multiple products enjoy Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully, we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going if you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at BigEsports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at big esports underscore gg thanks so much for joining us today mate this is uh the third or fourth time we try to record this podcast two busy startup founders happy we're in the same room together finally
1: it's really good to be here i'm very excited uh to be on the show
0: Well, hopefully uh, you're a little bit less nervous on this one. We're talking a little bit off mic about Thorin was was your last uh, interviewer on a podcast and you did it live as well. Obviously, we're pre-recorded. So hopefully you've got rid of some of the nerves and you can coast through this one a bit better.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot more notice in about three days and no talking points.
0: So I'm looking forward to this one a bit more. (laughs) Fantastic. So I guess let's just kick off the podcast the same way that we do every other one. I'd love to learn A bit more about your history. Obviously, you're involved in so many different projects today with the Gamers Group, but how did you get to where you are right now?
1: Funnily enough, I actually stumbled upon the gaming industry when I was about 14 years old. Um, Maybe similar to a lot of other people's stories, but I used to play RuneScape quite, I can't say competitively, but very uh, religiously. Yeah. And one day, a group of friends and I in high school said to ourselves, whoever could reach level 99 first will essentially get bragging rights of some sort. After a few hundred hours, one afternoon, I hit 99 Cooking, which is one of the weakest skills. And I took a screenshot and I went to upload it to Facebook. And then I sort of stopped myself because I thought that would be very embarrassing, you know, to share to everyone that I'm a nerd, pretty much. Mm. So I decided to actually go and create somewhere private where my friends and I could go on. We could talk. We could share content. We could essentially communicate in a private area. So I founded what was at the time called Roongi. Ended up building that for about three years, and it became one of the largest RuneScape forums at the time. Sold that uh, to focus on my HSC, and then started gamers gr- the Gamers Group as a little social network for gamers in 2013. Continued building that for a couple of years until we raised a bit of money, and you know now we've pivoted into an esports media and services-based
0: company. That's really funny you mentioned the Facebook thing. I remember back in 2011 or 2012, I was helping to manage and also sponsor a Counter-Strike team, and they came over from New Zealand to compete in Brisbane, and one of the guys, he was very adamant in saying, if you post any photos on Facebook, don't tag me. He told all of his friends that he was going on a family holiday and he won't be on the internet during that time, and nobody knew that he played games whatsoever. And (laughs) now, obviously, it's like the opposite. I think I shared an article on LinkedIn yesterday about how in the UK – um, a whole lot of teens are saying their favourite sport is eSport now. And it's become the favourite sport uh, predominant for you know people in the university and even like high school leagues and stuff now. If you've got some great clips that are going viral in Fortnite, you're the king of the school.
1: I-, I completely agree. I think there's been a huge, I'd say, tectonic shift in the last 10 years or so. I think people are really excited to share gaming stories or information about the games that they're playing. I, I know when I post about gamers on Facebook, I get a lot of c- uh, congratulations and credit from people that I was afraid to share that information when I was in high school. So I definitely think the trend is shifting, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's exciting for us, I guess. And, you know, people that went through like what we did back in schools being, you know, the nerds, the classic nerds versus the jocks and stuff. <laughs> and like you said, not wanting to share the information. And now they're kind of kind of being king of the school. I saw a great comment from someone, um, uh, Josh from Zero Latency, the marketing manager there, commented like quick, before you before you beat me up, just take a look at my Overwatch SR. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. So I guess I I wanted to start off with you is is why esports? You know, like you said, you're you're working in a media company. Media can be pretty transferable across any market, but why esports media?
1: That's actually a really good question. Um, Again, just as I stumbled upon my first business with uh, the RuneScape Forum, we actually stumbled upon esports as well in early 2016. So, when we were developing the social network, we really needed traction uh, to sort of execute upon a thing called the viral uh, the viral coefficient. Essentially, every single person that joins the social network needs to bring in at least one of their friends in order for the social network to grow exponentially. Sure. That didn't happen. That didn't actually eventuate for us. And so, we had about 10,000 registered members and a few hundred monthly active users. And we needed to pivot. You know, we were VC backed at the time we had raised half a million dollars in 2015 and we needed to execute upon something so after simply doing what we should have done in the first place which was ask our users what problems do they have or how can we improve their experience um, they said to us that they were looking for people to play counter-strike league of legends or any other title you know that they were playing at the time that were in the same region as them would communicate with a microphone you know had decent internet and so we realized that in the market um, there weren't really any platforms providing players with a place where they could recruit for teams or find other people to play with. And so we ended up developing that. So we developed uh, teamfind.com, which we released in alpha late 2015, Mm -hmm. and then in beta in 2016, February. We saw phenomenal traction for two games, Counter-Strike and League of Legends. Mm -hmm. And we decided that we wanted to continue down a pathway of, well, succeeding, I'd I'd say. Um, And we we once again went back to the users and we said, hey, how can we improve your experience? And they said to us, that they watch Counter-Strike tournaments, they watch League of Legends tournaments, but there's no real place that they can go and rely on for post-match analysis, information about the events, or any of that sort of stuff. And we realized there was no real content support for these titles, and that's when we stumbled upon the esports industry. We realized that there were a couple hundred million people watching these games. Even though we would play the games and my team members and I would play these titles, no one was really aware of the size of the industry until then.
0: Yeah, yeah, I found that really interesting and I guess back, you know, you'd, you'd say there's was a renaissance period of of um esports prior to the GFC, you know, thinking about how massive the World Cyber Games was, thinking about um people like fatality, you know, winning um Ferraris um you know in these early Painkiller and Quake tournaments and such. And then, you know, the GFC kind of crashed it. And I think a lot of people, myself included, who kind of came into the industry, you know, after this, it's easy to forget how big it used to be uh, and then kind of crashed out. And then we're kind of seeing that second rise today.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Gaming's always been huge. You know, you've had multi-billion dollar game developers and publishers since the late 1990s, and they wouldn't be at that size if they weren't generating meaningful revenue. You know, I remember playing Call of Duty and Halo 3 competitively with hundreds of thousands of people online every single day. And that was back in 2007, 2008. So gaming's, I'd say, always been growing at a rapid stay. Um, But I think esports has added a different angle to that. You know, we're bringing in more non-gamers, more casuals, which I think is really exciting to see them engaging with something that we love and we're so passionate about.
0: Yeah. So, f- So for you sitting as the gamers group, can you give me a quick idea of your portfolio and what you're currently working on?
1: So our goal as a business is to connect the global gaming community with the best services and content around the world. Um, so we've got, a, I'd say we've got two sections of the company. We have the media side of the business and we have a training and education services side of the business. So mm. on the media side, we own and operate two publications, uh, one of which is called Dottie Sports. We've been um, operating Dottie Sports since late 2016. That has over 5 million readers uh, across many different esports titles all over the world. We also have a general gaming publication called GamePer, which we acquired in May of last year. We've grown that from about 500,000 readers per month to over 2.4 million um, as of last month. And that's more focused on casual gaming, essentially non-competitive gaming. We also own a network of social media profiles. We have about 15 different accounts across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we reach over 200 million gamers per month. And over 300 million uh, content impressions are served on a monthly basis as well. That's the media side of the business. you know. I'd say we're continuing to mature and uh, identify different strategies where we can connect uh, esports fans and gamers with the latest and best content that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a very focal part of our business. But we, um, I'd say in early 2018, began exploring – how do I say this? Began exploring the applications of computer vision technology – in gaming and in esports, And after raising a Series A fundraising round in early 2018, we hired a team of engineers down in Adelaide, South Australia, mm-hmm. in order to develop a software that is capable of watching you play a game in real time and telling you about the good things that you've done in the game and also the mistakes that you've made mm-hmm. in order to help you improve. What we've done is developed an application called Gamer AI that watches you play a game, records the game from start to finish, uploads it directly to a server, And provides you with a fully automated annotation timeline of all the major events in the game, as well as any other information that you need. And we compare it across a wide variety of different benchmarks that we collect from the game. Hmm. So we've been developing that for about 12 months now. It's currently in beta for League of Legends and also in alpha for Dota 2 and Apex Legends. And we're continuing to improve the functionality whilst also exploring different ways that we can provide gamers with more information about their performance and their capabilities.
0: And this, this might sound like a, a little bit of a left of field question, but as you're, as you're listing off what you're, what you're doing, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on acquisition versus building yourself. So obviously, a few of these, especially at the start, as with many entrepreneurs, you, you build your own thing. Maybe you can sell it so you can, you can acquire other things, but you seem to have you know, almost a 50-50 kind of set there where you're building your own products on one hand, but acquiring and scaling on the other.
1: I think that's a fantastic question. Um, early on, it was definitely skewed towards the acquisition side of things. Um, Mm. there were many platforms and different businesses out in the space that were being provided purely just out of necessity. You know, Mm. they were built by casual gamers, by young individuals in college that were just looking to, well, essentially service their own needs. And because of the size of the gaming and the esports market, they happen to grow a large audience. I'll give you an example. One of the publications that we acquired in early 2016 to sort of springboard our first media offering, we acquired for less than $10,000. And I'm not going to say the name. It's less than 10000 Australian dollars. But it had over 150,000 readers. You know those yeah, acquisitions okay. don't really exist anymore because there have been uh, there has been a wide uh, there has been a large amount of consolidation in the industry, but you know two three four years ago there were many different platforms that people had built just purely out of necessity. And you could have acquired it for a small sum of capital because the revenue opportunities weren't there. The individuals behind the business weren't doing it as a full-time job. They were simply doing it as a hobby. So mm. in the beginning, you know, we were focused on acquisitions and acquiring different, uh, I'd say, businesses, different services, different distribution channels. We've acquired approximately 30 different businesses to date. But right now we're focused more on organically growing the acquisitions that we've made. So from a lot of the acquisitions that we've conducted, we tend to either consolidate them or divest them if they don't make sense anymore, and predominantly most of them fell under the media uh, umbrella, the media arm, and so after consolidating them and also driving the growth on the social network channels that we have, we're now focused more on organic growth.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, you know, understanding now the point of entering the industry so early, right? There's been so... You know, resonating exactly with like what you said where people were building things just because they needed it at the start. You know, I, I was having a call with a guy today and that still happens today. You know, he's created a quake land in Australia because Bethesda won't uh, and he's decided to put up a bit of money and do it himself. Or, you know, in the in the past where I, I was a player and I wanted more experience doing live events, so I ran my own event and played in it at the same time for Counter-Strike. And now you're seeing that consolidation in the market. Can we expand a little bit more on the wider consolidation in the esports market? I mean, in Australia, you've seen Icon Esports has acquired another gaming team, pulled them in together. Um, globally, you know, you've seen the Immortals group have acquired Optic and multiple assets around that. I think that's a trend that's going to keep continuing. Do you, do you agree? And what do you think is coming next for consolidation-wise?
1: I completely agree. I think consolidations need to happen. Um, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I feel like there's too many players in the market. You know, esports is rapidly growing and the audience is there, but it's still in its infancy. You know, the industry is only powered by some, say, three or 4,000 individuals, yet there's 400 million viewers. So I definitely think there are a substantial, there are substantially more companies in the space right now than there is a need for. And we're going to be seeing consolidations across a wide variety of um, sectors within the space. So as you mentioned uh, earlier, there's teams that are being acquired by other teams simply because they're not financially stable. Mm. And I think that's the crux of all consolidations or majority of the consolidations that will occur over the next three and four years is financial stability. We're, I'd say, going through a correction right now in the industry. A lot of investors invested under one simple premise, FOMO. They Mm. had a huge fear of missing out because of the mainstream publicity that esports was receiving Companies were receiving substantial investment rounds. They weren't able to or still aren't able to deliver on the revenue targets in order to make the business financially stable. Investors are starting to close off their wallets to the less uh, mature companies. Mm. And so where we're going to be seeing the consolidations are across a wide variety. So not only teams, but also other media-based businesses, uh, platforms that organize tournaments, so online ladder companies, a wide variety, I'd say.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're, yeah, I think you're 100% right. I'd agree with, yeah, every single point that's coming across there. And a lot of it really is that, you know, these people have have raised capital to create a company to try to hold on until esports becomes big enough. But, you know, through the big esports podcast, especially chatting to people, even like Ann Matthews, the co-founder of Fnatic, agrees that these non-endemic sponsors and money from outside of traditional esports has been a lot slower to mature than they even thought. So it just comes to the fact that, you know, is your runway long enough and can you keep raising against that or can you justify your valuation? And it goes back to a discussion I had today with a very prominent um, esports team investor who, who has quite a large portfolio in companies inside and outside of esports. And, you know, that's his major concern as well, is that esports teams are going to have to continue raising at a much higher valuation, but being able to justify that becomes harder and harder as you're reaching a, a higher multiple of revenue. And we're already sitting anywhere between 10 to 15x revenue for Esports, um, which is you know kind of a Silicon Valley narrative, but it doesn't fly with a lot of traditional investors that are looking for some cash flow and you know maybe five times at most to to come in. Yeah, there's uh,
1: so much I want to say on this topic. Um, there's two points I want to make. Firstly, the unfortunate situation is investors are looking at this space and going, "I want to invest in esports." But esports, in my eyes, is a blanket term. Where do you want to invest in esports? Do you want to invest Mm. in the IP creation where you're looking at the publishers and developers? Do you want to invest in the tournament organizers? Well, then you're looking at the ESLs, the Dreamhacks of the world. Are you looking at esports teams? Are you looking at esports media? Are you looking at esports platforms? There's just a Mm. wide variety. And the issue is, as you mentioned it yourself, we're looking at multiples of anywhere from 10 to 15, sometimes even 25 But those multiples should not be applied against the industry. They should be applied against the sectors, whether it's a SaaS business, a media business, a team-based business, whatever it is. And so that's number one. That's a number one issue that's causing a lot of investors to be burnt. So I completely agree with the points that you've made. And my second point is I think that quote that you mentioned hits a nail on the head. Is your runway long enough? I feel like investors that are looking to get into an esports-based business of any kind should be asking that question. The non-endemics are beginning to dip their toes into the market, but it's not at a rate that anyone really expected. It's a lot slower um, than uh, what people have wanted. It's a lot slower than what people have forecasted. It doesn't mean they're not going to enter the space, but you simply need to be cognizant of the challenges that they face internally and also the challenges that you will face as an esports-based business in not having uh, access to those advertising dollars, to those sponsorship budgets and all, all of that kind.
0: Yeah, generally, um, you know, when someone comes to me and says, I want a job in eSports, similar to the investment model, I say it's like saying I want a job in cars. So do you want to make the cars? Do you want to race them? Do you want to take photos of them? Do you want to build a website that talks about them? Um, Do you want to own a factory that makes the tires that go in the cars? Do you want to service them? There are so many different options available. Yeah, and I think you've brought up a good point. I haven't thought about it too much like that before, about instead of investing in it as an eSports company, invest in it as a team, a SaaS, an agency, media, et cetera, et cetera. Can you um, touch on as well around the media market? So there's been quite a lot of discussion, even globally, about the the issues with turning revenue at the moment in the media market. People using Adblocker, people don't necessarily want to pay for content where they should or shouldn't be. Um, Yeah, and it can be hard to find advertising spots. A lot of advertisers are going to things like influencers and such as well. You know, what are your thoughts on that side of the market?
1: I have probably about four hours worth of content. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's a, yeah, another great topic. Um, media is very challenging within the esports space. Uh, we've been involved since, uh, as I mentioned, early to mid 2016, so about three, three and a half years. Mm. And what we've seen um, during our time is a lot of companies either being consolidated into their parent companies or just simply being shuttered. You know, and we've, uh, I'd say, uh, have acquired many of those businesses, and we've uh, we've been privy to the books and to the financial records. And what I've seen. Irresponsible management of finances uh, across media-based businesses, but not because of uh, any negligence or mismanagement on the uh, the part of the founders or the management team, but simply because what you've said, ad block is substantial. So I'll give you an example. Happy to share a bit of data. On Dotty Sports, the average PC user, sorry, 67% of PC users have ad block. Yeah right. If you if you look at the media space, mobile revenue is about twenty five percent of the desktop revenue that you generate from advertising. So simply put, by having two thirds of your audience on desktop not being able to be monetized at all is a huge gap in your revenue opportunity. So mm. that's number one. Number two, the cost of content creation is continuing to rise. With more media companies entering the space that are VC-backed because of the aforementioned discussions, somebody wants to invest in esports, they fund a media-based business because, you know, very easy to grow uh, an audience and uh, reach a new demographic, hmm. journalists are being paid more, which I, th- I strongly believe that they should be to create content. The problem is when you're paying journalists a large amount of money, it makes the challenge even, it makes the challenge even greater in order to derive a return on that investment. And it's one thing to create really good content, but in the space, you not only have to be able to create good content, but you also need to be able to distribute that content out to an audience. And so Mm. when you take, you know, uh, uh, a new entrepreneur that starts up a media-based business within eSports. They're paying journalists anywhere from $50 to $150 an article, but they have no distribution channel. They're pretty much setting themselves up for a minimum of 12 to 18 months of 90 to 95% burn of all their operational expenditure. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, you know, the gamers group media uh, entities, we when we acquired Dotty Sports in October of 2016, we knew that we were going to be burning cash for about 12 months. But what we did was we set in place targets and different uh, processes to ensure that the burn was sustainable and that it w- we were on track to driving a profit with our operations. Thankfully, mm. Dotty Sports has been profitable for the last 16 months. And that's been really important for us because we know that the non-endemics aren't in the space as of yet, which means the advertising dollars aren't as high as they're going to be, Mm. but we are able to sustain our operations and continue to grow whilst we wait, well, pretty much wait for the non-endemics to join.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd like to liken that too to influencers. Um, You know, us here working a lot more with traditional influencers and such as well trying to explain to them the benefits of streaming on something like Twitch or creating more content on YouTube versus only being on Instagram because like you having dot .esports with the media platform, it inherently doesn't make money when someone's just coming onto the site unless you're serving Google ads, which you could almost see as quote-unquote free because you can always serve them. Yep. But it's exactly the same then as Instagram explaining to these guys that when someone's on Twitch, they're served with an ad. Yes, they might have ad block, but they're much more likely to have so many different options Options for revenue coming into you. There's donations, there's subscriptions. You know, as you become a partner, you can get featured on the front page and get more people coming in. You know, there's gifts, there's bits and all these kind of things. Whereas, you know, sitting there with an Instagram following, even if you've got $500,000, you're not making a single cent from that unless you're going out and selling to brands. And then that's a really manual process and something that You know, here at Big, we're trying to develop a sort of platform that hopefully will ease that process of sponsorship and sales, um, you know, for some of these teams and maybe accelerate non-endemics coming into the space. But it's a lot more work, I think, than most people realize. You know, I had a discussion with someone the other day who wanted us to sell commission-based sales for a project they're doing and saying, look, We'll give you a commission. All you have to do is go out, find them, and give them to us, and the rest is done. I'm trying to explain to them that yeah. it's a lot more than that. We need to develop the content with you. These are my contacts. I've spent years massaging and getting to know, and meeting up with, and working with. Um, you know, what's your reporting schedule? What's your reporting structure? Your pricing—that doesn't seem right to me either. We <laughs> need to discuss that. There are so many more things that are involved. You can't just turn on the tap of revenue. A
1: hundred percent. With every single point that you've mentioned, um, I probably have an anecdote. For a, a funny occurrence within the space. The problem is a lot of entrepreneurs that get into the esports space are very excited. You know, they've been gamers their whole lives. And, but they seem to miss the part where marketing is half of the business operations. You know, they'll build a product. It's really mm. cool. It looks awesome. It hopefully functions well. And how they describe it, and then they go, okay, well, now we need to market it. The problem is, as you've just mentioned, it's not a simple process of, oh, you drive us traffic and we'll do the rest. You need to be analyzing the demographic that you're targeting. You need to be analyzing the different uh, marketing channels that you'll be utilizing, whether you're going to go down the pathway of influencers, social media, paper, click, CPM, you name it. You have to make sure that economics makes sense. You have to make sure that the time that you're conducting the advertising, it's a very complex approach. And I, I completely agree. With what you've mentioned, the awesome thing about what you've also said is encouraging influencers and just generally businesses as well to increase their reach across a wider variety of platforms is so integral to succeeding in this day and age. It's Mm -hmm. not enough just to be uh, available on one platform, similar as a media business. You can't just be a website. You need to have a website. You need to have a network of social media profiles, whether it's Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. People need to be able to engage with you off-site. You then need to have an application where people can download and stay up to date with your your content, and it's the same with influencers. It's all good and well to have 500,000 followers on Instagram, but if you're not engaging with them across YouTube, maybe Facebook, Twitch, you're losing out not only on improving the stickiness of these of this audience, but also generating revenue in a meaningful way across different platforms.
0: So I wanted to pivot the conversation a little bit to have a chat about data. So data is something that's extremely important. Esports and gaming being digitally first, there seems to be a massive lack of data. So for you having you know access to multiple millions of people that are using your platforms and engaging with your content, obviously there's a, a set of data that you would have and that's some you know a massive powerful part of your IP. Can you give some examples to those out there who may be an influencer and own an esports team or a startup as to how they can better package and present their data in the future?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question Um, and it can be answered in multiple different ways depending on what your objective is. So I'm going to shy away slightly from the Gamer AI data collection because that's more focused on performance analysis Mm. and talk more about selling media and uh, bringing opportunities to different endemics and non-endemics and how we can encourage them to invest uh, with us, whether it's through a media or a sponsorship package. Um, One really exciting way of packaging your data is showing the multiple different opportunities that you have. That, or that sorry, it's showing the multiple opportunities that you can offer these potential partners to reach your audience. It's all good and well to be able to show somebody, hey, you know, we have these different ad slots on our website. We have this type of audience, and you can buy X million impressions. That's not really that exciting because when you're competing on an impression basis, you're competing with the likes of Facebook and Google. Mm. But what the opportunity that we have as a media business within the esports space is, we can target the the. Sorry, what we have is a unique opportunity in the esports and gaming space is we can target specifically. Different types of gamers across the different sections on our websites mm. to these brands who are trying to reach a certain audience. You know, with just by using simple software such as Google Analytics, you can automatically identify the people that are reading your League of Legends content. You can mm. break down the audience that's consuming your Apex Legends or Fortnite content, and you can actually identify the gender. The gender get ga- sorry the gender. Uh, Ratio. you can identify where they're living, you can actually break down their level of education and a plethora of other data points that you can then sell to these advertisers, you can sell to these clients, you can sell to these um, partners. And the way you need to package that up is by providing, uh, well, if if I'm providing a tip to somebody, the way you want to package that up is by developing different media decks for the different audience types that you have and being able to work with these partners on identifying the challenges that they have And then figuring out if you have the capability of satisfying that problem by using the data. So to Mm. answer your question in sort of a bit of a roundabout way, you want to be analyzing your data to specifically answer a question that a potential partner or a potential advertiser has and see if you can satisfy that need.
0: Mm, yeah, and that comes back to a podcast I did with Pete Curley from Game On Australia a few ago about um, being honest with your data and open um, when you're talking to these companies and not overselling yourself, especially so you can deliver because it's been you know an issue in the past where startups rightfully rightfully so you know i could well not even rightfully so i can understand why they're trying to get cash flow they're trying to get revenue in the door no matter how much they can so they go out to a brand and this is the, the classic cliche agency thing of we can do that we can do that you know oh you want me to sell makeup to male models i can do that too <laughs> you know my, my brand might say i'm in esports but you know this is this is what i'm selling to you today so you know that creates an issue when you actually comes to the reporting part of it but i like what you're saying about packaging up your data in different sections. It makes a hundred percent sense because once again eSports is wider than just eSports. You know, you've got the gaming people and, you know, often explaining those to people outside of, of eSports, the separation between eSports and gaming. You might have an older narrative of people that are interested in uh, shooters or they might be interested in Skyrim and RPG, Elder Scrolls-type games, whereas you might have Rocket League, which is a younger, much younger demographic and different spending habits. You know, Rocket League people might be living at home without kids where the people who are interested in Skyrim might be living out of home with kids or, you know, double-income, no-kids-type families who are purchasing different styles of products and understanding really where the brand is coming from and what they're trying to sell. So there's no point just going straight to a brand that's trying to sell high-end cars and saying, oh, we've got 18 to 24-year-old, we're going to sell you 400 cars. (laughs) That's maybe more of a branding campaign. And it really goes back to, um, you know, how to win friends and influence people. You know, a book which is just really understand who you're going into the room with before you go in there. You know, if if you do a little bit of reading up on someone, everything's online these days. You can see what they're posting on LinkedIn, what their work history is, and you can also take a look at their brand and look at the current marketing they're doing. So like in mentor courses of old, that that I've run before talked about if you're going to Corsair to get an eSports sponsorship – Come in and look at what they've worked with in the past and who they've worked with and say, Hey, I really like the work you've done with Badjo Pants. You know, we've got some similar offerings and we'd like to actually partner with you and him to do some campaigns together. And we'd like to collaborate because also people like their own ideas. And usually there's a global narrative of marketing that's happening here. You know, if a company is going hardcore into traditional sports like HyperX is, and you've maybe got some mates to play in the VFL and AFL, that's probably a fantastic thing for you to start pitching together with your esports team to start going to HyperX with instead. So Instead of just trying to pitch them the stock standard influencer pitch for an online play.
1: Exactly. I think that's an issue that's currently prevalent in the industry is, well, number one, overselling. And number two, just going in with the same pitch to every single company that you intend to work with. Mm. I think, as you mentioned, um, what you need to do is enter the meeting or enter the discussion by having an objective in mind. But having that objective being developed of what that company is trying to do, how that company has tried to tackle that problem in the past, and what previous campaigns or F- or initiatives have they conducted that you can leverage of? Because as you mentioned, they're not, they're not shooting randomly into the dark. They've got a strategy. They're looking to execute upon that strategy. The question is, are you going to be a part of that or not? And so what we do is rather than going out with the same media deck, we do have a general media deck that provides information on the company as a whole. After we've had that conversation with these companies, we then try to solve that problem by pointing to it pointing to a potential solution and backing it up with data. Otherwise, if we're going to every single company with the same media deck and saying this is what we can sell you, it's practically 18 to 24-year-old, 90% male, which isn't really exciting because some companies want to reach an, or, an older demographic. Other companies want to break down the different regions that your, that your content is being consumed in. And mm. so you can dive as deep as you want or as, well... A bit, go as broad as you want, but it's all about what is that company trying to do, and how can you help?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I think you um, and you definitely identified something that we're seeing a lot more here is understanding where your users are located, and that's something that, thankfully, you know, with our work here with with people like Bajo Pants and some of our Angry Dad guys with Shade, we've been able to really build an Australian heavy audience to be able to pitch to those Aussie brands. And I think localization of, of content and fan concentration is something that is a massive thing that most people are missing out on at the moment. Because if you look at a local council, and I'm friends with an ex-mayor of a council here in Melbourne, you know, fairly large region, but not the biggest, they've got a $5 million a year budget for community development and marketing. If you look at that $5 million budget, that's matching what the global marketing spend of someone like Corsair or Razor or such would be. So if you're pitching to Razor to try to get them to sponsor you, you're competing against Um, brands like SKT1, you're competing against FaZe, you're competing against Dot Esports and your properties and such as well. However, if you're going to local council and you can show them that you're going to bring business into their region and develop their local area, then A, they're much more likely to spend and B, they've got comparable pockets or if you're even looking at the Australian culture of Wednesday night sports, what's your local mechanic doing and such. So with Shade, for example, we're working with Mercedes of Brighton, which is one of the largest Mercedes um, in Victoria or or Melbourne and, and even around Australia. But for them, it's because the shade house is directly located in brighton it's we've got you know talent that are based out of that house we've got talent that have 80 percent australian audiences of which mitch orville has you know up to 60 percent in melbourne specifically so giving him access to that localized audience because if we went to mercedes global we'd be pitching off against esl and would esl you know would they rather go with esl or us you know that's it's an absolute no-brainer <laughs> there's no way so you need to understand the localization of content, and I think also your competitive advantage. You know, if if you're a a smaller influencer agency like we are and we're pitching off against the click crew or the misfits who are exponentially larger than we are, let's be honest, it's talking about our competitive advantage. It's talking about how we can bring in traditional sports people or how we have a different uh, integration of our content or we play different games and what makes you unique compared to the others. And that's always something that comes up with an esports team. You know, and esports teams often are just trying to be the best in CS:GO and/or the best in League of Legends, and that's what they come to you with. But it's like, what can you do for the brands that are different than everyone else?
1: I want to talk about that. I, I definitely think that's a problem within the esports space. Everybody wants to be the best around the world, but it's there's no problem being the best at CS:GO or be the best at media in a certain region. It's big. It, the the opportunity there is isn't enormous enough as long as there's a population of twenty or thirty million people which is pretty much every single you know country that is competing in some form of esports. Being very successful in that region is enough for you to build a 10, 20, $30 million business. It's substantially easier to run as well because you're in a localized region. You're not dealing with different time zones, different mm-hmm. cultures. So I completely agree with what you're saying. If you want to pitch Mercedes, you're competing with so many different global brands that have different unique selling propositions and so many different things. And even just being regionally located elsewhere, is working against you. But if you're actually pitching local or state based region, uh, sorry, local or state based um, uh, stakeholders, then mm. you're going to have a much easier time doing that. It's a lot easier for you to develop that business and continue to grow it. And ultimately, in the long run, you're very likely to achieve your objectives versus competing on the global stage. And I just want to clarify I'm not saying to, to I'm not uh, advising people to not compete on a global stage, but it's very conducive to start. in a a specific region and then once you feel that you've exhausted all strategic initiatives then to begin expanding globally but you when you're expanding on a global basis before you've even validated it in a single region yes it's likely that you might succeed or you know there might be a chance that you fail you're increasing the complexity and you're also forcing your business to grow and uh, grow into a more sophisticated business model a lot faster than what you need to
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you look at some games that have done this very well specifically, look at something like World of Tanks, you know, hugely profitable game. They've done a bit of work here in Australia because of the high spending nature, massive game in Russia. Or if you look at a game like Paladins, if you look on the global stage, you know, people make fun of it because it's the B-tier Overwatch. But look at how successful it is. It has teams like NIP and such competing. And now, you know, they've been able to afford the opportunity for Kanga and Aussie team to go over there and compete in Atlanta. Massive fans in Brazil. For that game, for example. So, you don't always have to be number one in the world to have a very large and successful business. And I think you're right. I think a lot of the time people think about how can I reach Apple and Microsoft? But instead, you know, why don't you think about building a hundred million dollar business first instead of a trillion dollar business? Exactly right. Hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to change a bit of the conversation away from, you know, problems in esports and your offerings to a bit more about um, you and your business acumen and, and how you've come to where you are today. There's so many people at the moment who are raising capital in esports right now. We talked about some of the challenges, some of the issues. There are a lot of people that are developing great products at the moment that we found. You know, it's going away from just being esports teams and leagues to actually developing online products and such. You've been someone who's raised multiple times throughout your period of time. I mean, where did you start gathering your information for that? A lot of people listening to this podcast want to make their first company, and where's a fantastic place to begin?
1: I'd say my journey in terms of fundraising started well before I actually raised capital. Um, So, originally, I established a business with a group of friends back in university in 2013, and we all just- bootstrapped it ourselves you know we all chucked in about four or five grand which was an enormous amount of money for a group of 18 year olds mm. um, and then focus on building the product and developing traction of some sort and I think that's the best place to start um, in terms of uh, if I was to give advice to anyone that's looking to raise capital traction is the most important thing everybody has an idea you know ideas are a dime a dozen um, mm. you know a lot of people have really really good ideas and the only thing that separates a good idea and a business is execution. Yeah. And the only thing that separates uh, a good idea and a good bi- and a business is perseverance and actual development. And so the best advice I can give you is if you have an idea, what you need to do in order to develop that business first is not raise capital, but to actually build something and validate it. Mm. You don't. You, I I very rarely recommend startups or entrepreneurs to raise capital I very rarely encourage somebody to raise capital if they do not have a validated idea or a validated product you know if you haven't built if you haven't built it out what you're raising capital for is to essentially say hey is this idea possible that's not the purpose of raising capital the purpose of raising capital is I have this idea I've developed this idea the business exists you know we've validated some of the economics now can we see if we can scale this business from a thousand dollars a month in revenue to forty thousand dollars a month in revenue or growing something from ten thousand monthly users to a million monthly users mm-hmm. um, so in our situation when we started we were a social network and we developed that all internally We had a one engineer that we worked with we developed a social network and then we marketed it ourselves before we actually raised a single dollar. Um, prior to raising capital, we had about 250 people using the platform. We had some level of validation. We had about 4,000 registered members and we had a product that we could show and demo to investors. We ended up applying for the Slingshot Accelerator program out of, a f- I think, 400 applicants. We were chosen as a top six and that was where we f- technically raised our first uh, capital. So we raised $30,000. We gave away 10% of the business. Um, best decision I ever made. We received advice and mentorship from a great group of individuals that have been there before and done that. And the first thing that they uh, sort of instilled into us, and we sort of had already uh, known that, was to develop traction. So if you're looking to raise capital in this space, the most important thing is traction because it separates you from the thousand other businesses that are looking to raise capital. Again, Mm. unless you're a a previous founder that has exited a business – or you have some sort of domain expertise that no one else has, it's not enough anymore just to have an idea. Hmm. You need to have some sort of product that has a minimum level of of validation.
0: Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to the the whole build an MVP thing, right? A minimum viable product. And it's always... It's always hard advice to give, I think, to tell people to build something first when they're saying, I don't have any money or, you know, I can't possibly make it. But my answer is there's there's always there's always a way to build something, build anything. Because if you, like you said, everyone can have an idea and people whose minds are quite busy and who are entrepreneurs like like you and myself, we I have new business ideas every day about things I'd like to do in esports, but it's just not realistic to execute on them. And maybe I'm not the best person to execute on them. But if you can go ahead and do something, whether it's opening a website, making all the social medias and just starting to get contacts if you're trying to become a journalist literally just start writing and start your own blog and put things on the page if you start getting members in register your own uh, url for 60 bucks a year grab yourself an outlook email and then off you go you've started a media company and then if you can start to build that traction then you can raise capital against it but if you go to a vc or you know even an angel or a seed investor a high net worth individual and say hey i'd like to create you know the next washington post you need to have something tangible to show them first because you can't exponentially increase the dollar value on 0 or exponentially increase the traction on 0 you know 0 times a million is still 0
1: well essentially when you're raising capital you're trading equity for cash and if you go to an investor and all you have an idea uh, all you have is an idea you're pretty much saying to somebody I'll give you 50% of a thing that I've thought about I want you to give me $100,000. They're mm. not going to pay you $100,000 just because you had an idea. They're going to want to see something. Yeah. And I always go back to the Groupon example. Groupon, which is now a multi, I think, or maybe a billion dollar business, which is still phenomenal, started off as a blog. They were a blog. They gave away coupons. Mm. And look at them now. So an MVP is literally the smallest form of product that you can deliver that can validate a hypothesis. So if you have an idea for a media business, start a blog. Hmm. I have, and I'm in constant communication with a lot of journalists that have their own blogs that have hundreds of thousands of readers, and it's become their full-time job.
0: Hmm. Yeah exactly. Yeah building an MVP isn't isn't always as hard as, as it seems. It just takes a bit of elbow grease. Yeah, it exactly. takes a bit of work and, and obviously time. But I mean what kind of company doesn't, right? Unless you're, you know, unless you're looking to just do the corporate life or, you know, the 9 to 5 which generally means you're not an entrepreneur anyway, you know, then maybe it's not for you. But yeah, building something, at least that you can raise against. And look that being said, there there is still, you know, the angel investors that invest in someone with a fantastic idea and, you know, maybe they have very specific IP. You know, it's not can never say never, but it's just much easier for someone to invest in something, a product, whether it's physical or digital, has some traction already that you can scale.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think rapport plays a very big role in that. You know, if you know somebody and they've worked with you, it's always about investing in the team. Um, And the reason why I say to you, if you're looking to build a company and you're looking to raise capital, if you haven't done it before, then- you don't really have that level of rapport with investors. That the best way to sh- sort of uh, show that and sort of build that rapport is by going into a meeting and saying, "Hey, look, I've built this. I've got a few hundred people using it. It looks really cool. I've got a couple of ideas of things that we can do with the uh, with this engagement with these users. I'm looking for fifty grand or a hundred grand. Are you interested?" And they'll be like, "You know, what? this is actually." It's actually pretty cool. I might not give you the whole check size, but I'm willing to take a punt on that. And that's usually how it begins. It always starts with a small check that backs a bunch of crazy people that are building something that's exciting or that's cool. But they've taken the first step to actually do that. Hmm. But again, yep, yeah, you're 100% right. There are the sort of extreme circumstances where somebody's phenomenal, they've done it before, or they know a group of people and they've got that report and they get backing for an idea.
0: Hmm. Yeah, 100%. So I want to talk um, a bit more about your position within gamers. So obviously, you know, you're holding quite a few companies underneath. How do you personally divvy up the time to work between all of these entities?
1: When I have the answer, I'll give it to you. <laughs> um, the best thing that we did was at the back end of 2018 was implemented a thing called business units. Um, I This is my first job, you know, didn't really graduate from university. So, I've been learning a lot of the things um, on the fly. I've, I've got some phenomenal mentors. I've got a great board of directors that's mm-hmm. very supportive. And the biggest challenge that I've had, and there's not really a substantial amount of research on this, is how to manage the different personnel across our four offices around the world. So um, we have an office in Sydney, one in Adelaide, one in Austin, Texas, and also one in Mumbai. And the biggest challenge for us was keeping our costs and expenses down whilst keeping our productivity and our operational efficiency at the highest level. And the challenge that we had was the traditional organizational structure that companies normally rely on only work if you have one product and or sort of one business that you're developing. But yeah, across right. the gamers group, you know, we have Dotty Sports and GamePur and a network of social media profiles. We have you know, Gamer AI and we have a couple of different other service websites that I'm not going to go uh, too deep into. Mm. And so the challenge was how do we build a team that is multi-departmental but also across multiple different business units? And so what we did was built a structure that allowed us to allocate different staff members to different ventures, otherwise known as business units, build in the reporting structures and the different levels of KPIs, and then establish communication processes in order to make that as efficient as possible. And it seems to have worked out, uh, I'd say, quite well. Uh, Dotty Sports, Gamepur, and our network of social media profiles are all powered by one single team, and they all understand their roles very well. Uh, Kevin Morris, our Vice President of Content, Ben London, our director of marketing and Mike Vicroy, our head of social, all uh, do a phenomenal job working together, very cohesive. And that's something that we're now applying to the AI and training section of the
0: business. And do you find that the stage that you're sitting at when you're looking to raise, uh, or or I'd be interested in learning from you, when does it pivot from the fact of you're trying to get money from or get at the table with anyone where you can now be the one who's actually picking, who's able to give you the checks? When, when does that flip?
1: It flips when they come to you versus you coming to them, um, mm. which is sort of a bit of a counterintuitive answer. But what you want to do, and for full transparency, I don't think Gamers Group is at that level yet either. Um, when you've gotten a product that is self sustaining and can develop uh, different ideas, sorry, can develop different ideas that it has, different strategic ventures, and execute upon that with minimal risk to the uh, livelihood of the company, that's when you've gotten to the point where your business is sustainable and people are interested in getting involved. So, mm. you know, on the media front, as I mentioned, we've been profitable for the last 15 or 16 months. We can execute on different ideas and different ventures without worrying too much about affecting the foundational uh, structure of the media company. But on the AI and training side of the business, I'd still say we're very early stage. We're still in the process of validating and commercializing. At that point, you know, at this point, we can't really, you know, I'd say call the shots, uh, mm. which ideally as a business, you want to be able to do one day.
0: Yeah, and you know, and I find you know for myself working in the industry, and for many others I talk to, it can be hard after a while of punching up, and that's what it feels like a lot of the time. You know, esports over a long time has been punching up as an industry as a whole, but then also you are as a founder, you're you're the one who's always asking for everything. You're doing the outbounds to the companies to to close the leads and following up on them because you're at the back of their mind they're forgetting to email you back. You're contacting the investors and always asking them and going to meetings all the time, being rejected and that kind of stuff. So how do you, I mean, how do you personally deal with that, deal with trying to build up a business over the time, you know, maybe some of your business in the past fail? How do you not let that reflect on yourself and keep pushing forward?
1: Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to separate yourself as a founder from the success of the company. Mm. You know, when the company's doing really well, you're sort of on top of the world. When the company's struggling, you're um, at the bottom. Mm. Um, and it's very important that you, re- and you need to do this very early on, otherwise you'll burn out, is identify that the business isn't you and you're not the business. The business is developed by a group of indiv- hopefully really talented individuals that you get to work with every single day. And it's a culmination of all your hard work. And so, you know, as a founder and as a CEO, we're taught, give all the credit to your employees. And whenever something bad happens, take all the blame. And, you know, that's true because as a CEO or as an executive, you get to control a lot of the decisions that are being made. So you should be held accountable. Mm. But at the same time, you have to realize that not everything is in your control. And although a business might struggle or there might be challenges, you need to be able to sort of separate yourself out and look at it from the outside and go, you know what, I've tried my best in that situation. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out, but we're we're here to fight another day. So that's one really important point. Um, The other one is, as I mentioned, I want to double down on this, is having a team that you can rely on. By having a team that you can rely on, everything else is secondary. If you have great engineers or great product managers, great marketers, great whatever, you can go and you can work directly with that team to tackle many different problems. And when you're a small team, People wear many different hats. And as a CEO, the one thing that I've learned and the one thing I'm really, really proud about, uh, proud of is the team that is around me. I'm honored every single day to lead those individuals. I learn so much from them. Whenever a problem arises or a challenge occurs, we tackle it head on and we share the workload, we share the pressure. And that's something that's really important because you have to persevere through the years because it's not a a short-term process to build a company it takes many years i know i've been at it for nearly six years now um and it doesn't really get easier you just get better at what you're doing
0: Mm, yeah 100 percent and you know, I, I talked a little bit on Twitter the other day with, with a few people about exactly what you're saying. Like, you know, you're, you're not your business and your business isn't your identity, which is something that I think a lot of startup founders find hard. And, and I think that that's not even internally. A lot of the time it's put from the outside. How someone's business is going at any one time is reflected directly on the CEO. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, you know, Elon Musk is one of the obvious cases of that. You know, if Tesla's down, it's all his fault and it's terrible. If Tesla's up, you know, invest in this man. He's the best thing to come out of, out of Africa, you know. <laughs> <laughs> since sliced bread but yeah yeah i think you're definitely right for that
1: it's, sorry the media yeah. plays a really big role in that i know when i received coverage um for the fundraising rounds it, it put a lot more it gave me a lot more credit than what i deserved and what not enough was focused on the team and i sort of understand that the narrative around in the media is always about this individual that has built this phenomenal company but you have to recognize that individual although is the head of the company They are a small portion of all the effort that goes in. And that's a challenge because sometimes, you know, with young founders, and I'm guilty of this very early on, you know, when I was featured in these magazines at the age of 19, 20, I was so excited. It gives you an ego. And the one thing that you need to realize as a CEO and as a founder, either you realize it on your own or it gets taught to you, is you need to be humble. And you need to recognize that the success doesn't come from media coverage the success doesn't come from vanity metrics the true success of an entrepreneur and a business manager is the well-being of their team and the well-being of their company and the well-being of the team is very simple are the employees happy do they enjoy coming into work and are you losing staff in record rates and the well-being of a company is are your economics correct are you able to become profitable one day if not then you've pretty much got a a house of cards
0: yeah yeah it's Always going back to, I guess, the social media aspect of things once again, right? Yeah, people dressing up things on Instagram, looking amazing at the same time the business is falling apart (laughs) in the background. Yeah, you can be featured in as many ESPN articles and, you know, online as you want. But, you know, if your business isn't sustainable, your staff aren't happy and you're, you know, not keeping them safe, it's, it's a hard thing. And it... I mean, that, you know, a bit of a tangent again, but that goes back to a discussion around, you know, staff remuneration and working with them and how you actually look after the staff. You know, there was an esports team here in Australia that that fell um, into that trap where they were paying well above industry standard salaries for their players under the guise, and I think they truly believe this, that they were looking after the players. However, that shortened their runway significantly. They didn't have enough money to do sales or BDM or to grow their company, and then ultimately they weren't looking after their players because the whole company died and the players had to go somewhere else to find a job?
1: It's a constant balancing act. Um, there's many different angles that you can take it. You can take it from, you know, businesses and a charity, therefore pay what you can afford. But there's also the element of team-first culture, which means take care of your team. Where Richard Branson talks a lot about this, take care of your team, and then they'll take care of the customers. Mm. As a founder sorry, as a founder or a CEO of a startup, you don't really get the, um, the opportunity to be frivolous with your cash. I think if you get that opportunity, then you should hold on to that money as tightly as possible because it's not always easy to come across that money. Mm. Um, So, again, you need to find a balance and you need to consistently adjust that balance to ensure that the business is able to survive. You know, you're paying well above market rate is fantastic if you're looking to uh, acquire talent that needs to be acquired that's integral to your company's success. Otherwise, paying above market rate for for just generally, well, I'd say everyone – It's probably naive if you're not profitable or if you don't really have a reason to besides you want to be generous. Because at the end of the day, improving your employees' morale isn't just through pay. Employee morale comes from are they working on a project that's successful? Do they have certainty that the business is going to be around in 12, 18, 24 months so that they can continue to pay their rent and their bills and their mortgages? Is the company an interesting place to be at? If you're just paying them really well, but they recognize that the company isn't succeeding, then – it's not really taking care of their well-being if you have to lay them off. Yeah, That's and if they,
0: and I guess if they truly care about the company, it's worse because they know that by being there, they're shortening the runway and hastening the death of the company that they care about and yeah. they're working in at the same time.
1: Exactly. It's not the employee's obligation to make the company successful. It's the CEO and the executive team's obligation mm. to make the company successful. The employees are meant to be there to do their responsibilities, to you know, uh, instill a great company culture and work well together. So, it's your role to make sure that you're not
0: bleeding money. So, how do you um, justify your position as being the CEO? Do you think that this is, a, a you know, not necessarily a lifetime CEO gig for you, but how do you internally reflect and, and understand, you know, where your staff underneath your position, you've said that's amazing, but how do you rectify it with yourself?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the first thought that comes to mind when you bring that up is how do I justify it? Well, honestly, I'm honoured. Um, the individuals that I work with across the multiple business units are phenomenal. You know, I would like to t- uh, put a bit of spotlight on a few of the individuals. As I mentioned, Kevin Morris and Ben London both were hired within about a month's span of each other. Kevin's got over 15 years experience and a master's in journalism. And he is probably, and I'm obviously biased in saying this, probably the best editor within the esports space uh, and esports media globally. He's phenomenal. He's grown. He grew daily.esports Dot Esports from zero to three hundred thousand readers. And when he joined the Gamers Group, and we relaunched Dot Esports, it's now been it's now grown to over five million readers per month. So he's done a phenomenal job. Ben London, our digital marketing manager, who runs uh, Dot Esports with Kevin, and is also the head of GamePer. When we acquired GamePer, it was at five hundred thousand readers per month. Now sits at just under two point five million. Once again, completely organic. Because of the hard work. So my position as a CEO, again, for me, it leaves me very honored because I get to work with individuals such as this. Where I come in is I try to get out of the way by providing them with the resources that they need, enabling them to succeed by helping manage the different employees that they require and just supporting them. So when you find really good people and you provide them with the authority and the autonomy to do what they need to do, then they can handle that on their own. And what I do is sort of plug the gaps. You know, while they're managing the growth of Dotty Sports and Gainper and social media is running, what I do is help bring in the sales team, help bring in the programmatic advertising team, help bring in XYZ and be able to make a full business out of that. So my job as a CEO is manage all the resources, develop the objectives in conjunction with the board, develop the strategy also in conjunction with the board, and then execute that by bringing in all the uh, pieces of the puzzle together.
0: Yeah, fantastic. How do you identify the time when maybe it's not the best for you to be a CEO? You know, how do you, how do you understand that? Yeah, um, that's, yeah, also
1: a great question. Um, I, to answer your previous question, I'm not married to the role of CEO only because what I'm more focused on and what is more important to me is the success of the business for all the shareholders, for all the employees, and also for all the customers. I think, yeah. and I'm, This is sort of an educated guess, I'd say. I feel that the time you recognize it's uh, time for you to step down and let somebody else take the reins is when things are slipping out of your hands. You know, as a CEO, you need to be able to control the situation. You need to be able to utilize either the mentoring around you to be able to make a decision based on a new challenge. Or if it's just a challenge that you've faced before, be able to utilize the data to decide on the best way forward. But when it gets to the point where the company is generating more meaningful revenue, and you are struggling to grow that, or you are having challenges with the team size, you're you've got scaling problems, and you can't address them in a timely and effective manner, that's time for you to say, "Okay, I feel like I'm weighing over my uh, I mean wh- weighing over my head. I need to bring in somebody that can help me, either as a chief operating officer, or I need somebody to take over." Mm-hmm. and That's a fantastic, as weird as that sounds, it's a fantastic problem to have because it means you've developed a company of material size and it's now time
0: to bring in somebody that can take over and you can
1: add value in different ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've always been a fan of that. And I wish I could remember where I read it from, but it was saying that, you know the founder doesn't always make the best CEO. Maybe they make the best chief strategy officer because they're really good at the ideation and understanding where the market is and where they need to go. But not as prominent in dealing with raising in the board and you know if you're publicly listed, dealing with all the stuff that happens with that. Which is why I was always a fan of say Gfinity in Australia. I was a fan of of their employee model. You know where their CEO comes from that traditional background. Um, you know working in in finance and, and traditional business spaces. The CEO comes from a general manager of sport and then every head underneath them is all pure esports with lots of experience in sales or marketing or production quality and things like that because a lot of the time like you're saying the ceo is there to run the company they're not necessarily there to be the steve jobs visionary and to also be designing the products and to be writing the articles and such they're there to make sure that the company's profitable functioning well and moving along into the future
1: yeah the sole job of the ceo is to make sure the company is liquid enough so it operates it's pretty much the definition um, but the way i see it if i was to you know give a sort of an analogy or or maybe just an example is the founder ceo is there to will the company into existence and then the ceo after whether that's the founder or somebody else is to scale that business you know mm. founder ceo takes an idea from zero to one the next ceo takes it from one to a hundred
0: yeah that's interesting analogy i haven't heard that one before I wanted to ask you as well, um, you know, wrapping up a bit because we've been going for a while now. When you're when you're creating a startup, most people at the moment don't necessarily think about their exit. And when I'm talking to people who are raising capital and coming to ask for a bit of help, whether it's building the deck or reaching out to investors, it's not something that they've ever thought about. When do you think that you should start thinking about what your exit may be in the future and how that might structure? And, you know, how how do you build that business around it or do you just create the company and when it comes, it happens?
1: If you've built a startup before, then I think you should be thinking about the exit as you're ideating and building the first MVP. I think, because you've been through the problems before, there's not going to be as many unforeseen challenges, and you can definitely allocate a bit of bandwidth. If it's your first startup, I feel that you can think of an exit when you're beginning, when you, once you've validated the idea and you're beginning to scale it into some sort of business, because. Mm. With the amount of challenges that there are, if you're too focused on an exit, you might actually miss having a product that meets product market fit. Yes. So, you know, if you're building a startup, very simple. If you're building your first start- startup, sorry, um, very simple. Just develop the product, validate it, get some of the economics working. And then you can say, okay, if this works, who can I exit to? But if it's something that you've done before, then I think it- the exit should be in the back of your mind. Because... First startups are always a romantic idea to the founders. You know, this is the thing that they're going to run for 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. It's it's this awesome and exciting idea. But once you've been doing it long enough, you go, well, this is really awesome. This is fantastic. It's very exciting. But I need to deliver a return for my shareholders or I need to, you know, find out where this business is going to go, whether it's going to exit to a larger company or
0: whether I'm going to go and step away. Yeah, and I think it can be quite confronting because it's your baby. You know, the, I remember the first time I'd never thought about that in the past. You know, often you think that, oh, well, I'm just focused on building something right now. But part of it could be defining a service offering as to, you know, if you're making an exit and you're deciding to sell to someone might be part of the way you take your business. You know, if you're making a... Um, esports team and you know you're not sure what your exit is and maybe you'd like to be acquired by Icon or acquired by Team Liquid maybe you should start developing your service offering to be a bit different to them so they can encapsulate you into their business or if you're aiming for a public offering maybe you should start broadening and you know really working on generating that revenue and becoming cash flow positive to be great for a public list of shareholders
1: exactly right Um, somebody told me once I can't remember who the best way to get acquired by a company is to piss them off (laughs) Um, companies acquire threats yeah, more right. often than acquiring a business that's complementary. Because you know, if they're big enough to acquire you, and you've got a complementary service, it's very likely they can replicate you. Whereas, if you're a threat, then for a, for a Facebook or a Google or just a m- multi-hundred million dollar business, you know, a few million dollars for them might be a couple of weeks' revenue. Whereas, a few million dollars for the founder might be life-changing capital. So, mm. you know, the best thing that you can do is piss off a company that's big enough and get under their skin because then they'll be like, well, you know what, it's a lot easier to buy them in case they're going to be a threat.
0: Yeah, and it's much easier to get bought by Facebook than it is for them to release stories on Instagram (laughs) and kind of, you know, crash Snapchat, you know, being one of the main examples kind of thing. And, I mean, that's what VCs ask all the time, right? It's like... You know, if, if you're raising capital to someone, a very common question is, you know, what's your defensibility and what's your special IP? You know, for me, a lot of it comes to myself and my contacts and experience in the industry and developing products and understanding where to take the company based around that. So that's an IP that's, that's hard to rip off unless someone, a bunch of people come in and outs me as, as a crazy fraudster or something, I guess. <laughs> but if you're, say, just building an online tournament platform or a, an average, you know, tier two esports team, what's to stop someone else from coming in? If you use the Australian example... Or even if you use a global example, Australis. They didn't exist. They came into the market out of nowhere. They had one of the best CSGO teams in the the world. And then for a long time, they were the best. And then they managed to pick up sponsors like Audi and such. You know, these massive non-endemic brands that have never been involved with someone else before. So, you know, what's your defensibility as team A? Um, You know, stopping other people coming in and just replicating your product and doing a better job than you.
1: Speed's always a good one. If you're faster to the market and you're faster to continue executing, that always definitely plays a role. But you're exactly right. There's gotta be some sort of IP protection or some sort of unique angle that you can target. At the end of the day, Snapchat was first. And then after they declined Facebook's three billion dollar offer, Facebook developed
0: stories on WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So good luck to Snapchat.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean still, you know, still a good business, but took a massive hit because of that, right? Yeah. So what's coming up next for you? What are you working on at the moment? We've got a target of
1: 10 million monthly active users across Dottie Sports and Gamepur by the end of uh, 2019. That's really exciting for us. We're working Mm. also on a few strategic initiatives to continue growing uh, the sustainability of the business, but also engagement across our readership. Um, One thing that's really important for us is not only getting more users to utilize our platform, but getting more people to rely on us on a daily basis. So you know the issue with media and this is a very very this is probably one of the main reasons that media businesses continue to struggle is the fickle nature of your audience. You mm-hmm. know users will utilize your platform maybe once a month, and that's an issue only because content is so easy to come by yeah what, one thing that we're always looking to grow and this is a very very long term effort is increasing the number of returning users by small percentage points on a every quarter. You know, it's not an enormous amount, but if you were to, for example, grow your percentage of returning users by two or three percent a quarter across five million people, that is hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. So that plays a big role uh, in the company's success. Yeah, I think that's probably the, I'd say, my most important uh, targets over the next six months.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it goes back to to one of the old adages. And once again, I'm not sure where I read this. That you know, if if you want to make the biggest company in the world, make something that everybody uses you know, Apple, everybody's got a phone of some sort. And if they can capture 50% of the market, which they had for a long time, everybody's using a phone and upgrading constantly. You know, you're always in the front of their mind and they're using it all the time. And it's it's interesting you mentioned about um, getting users back to the site. I remember reading an article talking about hltv.org and the crazy amount of natural traffic they get. And I remember being a Counter-Strike player, opening that site at least every two to three days, always to get that information. And I guess that's, for me also, that's, something that's come through a lot of the time in businesses and, and ways that I've worked in esports is how do you become the front of mind? And I'd say that's for esports as a whole, as an industry. Right now it's I haven't really thought about it or I'm not really interested. How do we pivot it so esports can always be the first thing that someone's thinking of? Because this used to be magazines, for example. Every time um, – people would come over from you know taiwan which is a real tech capital of the world with asus and gigabyte et cetera, there the first question they would generally ask me in australia is what magazine should i advertise in you know how do we change that to be what esports team do i sponsor first instead
1: yeah i think that's a uh, that will grow organically HLTV is a great example of a very very niche business that succeeded on a global scale long term mm you know, the website interface is questionable. Uh, the content's uh, predominantly user-generated, but it's a phenomenal business with great economics and a great foundation. And I think they've done a great job developing it. And that's an example of, you know, targeting a niche, developing a product market fit, and then becoming sort of the home for CSGO. And it's the same thing, you know, with companies going, "Where? how do I reach this audience? What magazine do I advertise in? Or, you know, should I buy Facebook ads or Google ads? Well, maybe no. You can buy Twitch ads or you can go... Um, Go to YouTube Gaming. So that, again, will grow organically. It's just a question of how long is your runway?
0: (laughs) Yeah, very true. And expanding, I guess, once again, and like what you said with HLTV, it's it's back to the point of niching down on your product offering. And this is why the quote-unquote magazine shows in esports are always so hard. Because as a fan, you know, I am a fan of general esports. However, I don't really care about who's current number one in the world for League of Legends or Overwatch, where I might care for Counter-Strike and Dota. But that means that I don't want to sit through 45 minutes to talk about Dota and and League of Legends, the same way that if you're an avid AFL and NRL fan, you don't want to sit through 45 minutes of tennis highlights to get to those. Mm -hmm. That's what traditional TV was for, but that's now what we have on demand, where you can click through to a YouTube video or go directly to a site like HLTV, which can service your Counter-Strike fix.
1: Completely agree. And that's why I call esports a blanket term. Esports is a blanket term for competitive video gaming. Mm. The question is, what competitive video gaming market are you serving? League of Legends, Dota, CSGO, Overwatch. You know, all titles are big. All of those titles are big enough for you to build a very successful business on. Don't try to target every single one. Target one and then expand. You know, and again... Bit counterintuitive considering Dotty Sports is a general esports website, but we focus content on the titles itself, you know, Mm -hmm. and we had the multiple acquisitions underneath our belt that allowed us to springboard uh, the company traffic, the website traffic. Um, But those opportunities aren't available as much anymore. Not saying that you can't do it, companies do it all the time, Mm -hmm. but it's just a matter of picking a niche, doubling down on the quality of that. You'll have a much easier time engaging an audience, reaching an audience, and retaining an audience. It's, I think, six times cheaper for you to retain a user than acquire a new one.
0: So if someone wants to engage with yourself or follow what you're doing online, where's the best place to do that?
1: If somebody wants to reach out to me or engage with me directly, our best place to do it is on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Riyadh underscore Shikani. Probably spelling will be
0: uh, published somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fantastic, mate. Well, thanks for coming in today. And um, yeah, look, I learn a lot. And I think that the people listening, you know, can um, learn a lot from an experienced founder such as yourself, someone working in so many different segments of the market. And, you know, I found it personally very interesting understanding when to build a business and scale versus when to acquire. And that's not something that people have really talked about in esports because it's such a new public phenomena.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Um, I love the conversation, um, talking a lot about the different ways that you can build a business in the space it sort of brings me back to when i was starting out and i just want to say to all the listeners if anyone's interested in having uh in talking to me or getting a better understanding of you know different ways they can tackle the market and ways they can build a business feel free to reach out to me i'm happy to help um at the end of the day this is a still a very young industry it's still being developed you know there's a lot of different opportunities and different angles but also Mm -hmm. changing landscapes that If we can all work together in developing the maturity of the space, then we're all going to benefit. And I sort of subscribe to the notion of a rising tide lifts all ships with where esports is at today. There's still a long way for us to go. I definitely think the market could uh, benefit from having more entrepreneurs such as Chris yourself, you know, and what you're doing with the Shade Crew and Big in improving the sort of structure of the space and, you know, who's involved in it.
0: Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to the Big Esports Podcast. This has been episode number 44 with Riyadh from the Gamers Group. If you would like to learn how to spell his last name or to get any links to what we've talked about today, including the full show notes, head to bigesports.gg forward slash 44. That's the number 44. Thanks for listening and bye for now thanks for tuning into our podcast today for show notes relevant links and upcoming projects you can check us out online at BigEsports.gg or follow us on our social medias at big underscore gg